Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And we're going to take a break from extreme amounts of science, uh, which is going to make Dr. Carvelis a little sad, but it is football season. Um, so in case you're listening to this in the future, we are now just after week two of the 2020 uh, COVID-shortened or differentiated uh, NFL football season. Uh, and, you know, we are... Northern California sports fans um, and the San Francisco 49ers have just been absolutely decimated by injuries uh, with you know roughly half of their starting positions now injured um, and I think a lot of the questions that have popped up in our heads but also I think nationally is is there something that's going on with this uh, NFL season that is differentiated because there was no preseason uh, because a lot of teams did not do as much contact drills uh, beforehand. Uh, is there something different about this year as far as uh, injuries are concerned? Um, and so Dr. Carvelis and I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that, um, kind of go a little bit into some of the literature, although there's not a lot, but uh, there is at least some data. The NFL obviously tracks their injury data very well. Um, and so I think we just kind of wanted to uh, kind of dive in. And you know, some of this might be a little emotional because uh, we're looking at a team that is now playing players that were not expected to be starting on a on an NFL roster. Um, so bear with us, is that? <laughs> yeah, and I think as you were uh, as you were mentioning a few things there, I, I know that um, uh, you know, especially uh, on the radio, on on TV, uh, when people bring up the fact that there you know was uh, no preseason in, in the setting of, of COVID nineteen, uh, one of the first uh, statements that are made as well, you know, guys like Nick Bosa uh, most likely wouldn't have played in those preseason games regardless, which is probably true. However, you know, we're not just referring, uh, you know, whether or not they would have got a couple of snaps is obviously debatable. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I think even more importantly than that, even though these guys, um, you know, again, using Nick Bosa as an example, that guy's obviously, uh, you know, out of this world uh, uh, fit, you know, a, a guy, a ridiculous specimen, and I'm sure he's training like crazy all the time. But there's nothing uh, that replaces, you know, being on the field with your teammates and obviously with uh, other teams. Um, but if we're talking strictly about the preparation for the season, you know, being out there with your uh, teammates, being on the field, uh, having some level of uh, contact, you know, even if it's not uh, full contact, all of that uh, matters. And I, th I think that's kind of the the key points that we wanted to, uh, you know, discuss today is not only in the sports setting, does uh, does the kind of suboptimal biomechanics uh, or, or you know conditioning, and when, we, and when we're saying conditioning, not just strengthening, but that neuromuscular control, you know, does that increase risk of injury? And then you know, applying that another key point, applying that to what we as providers see on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of individuals dealing with more chronic pain uh, pathologies because uh, as we've brought up before, but as is always important to emphasize, um, you know, to not only increase the chance of success uh, and, you know, the patient continuing to move forward with, uh, with their, you know, very important uh, foundation of treatment being, you know, physical therapy and home exercise program, uh, one of the keys to that is doing it in a strategic and, and graded fashion. Um, so, we'll, you know, we'll kind of come back to that point. But going, 
you know, back to the uh, to the f- <laughs> frustration that you know Dr. Hovis brought up in terms of um, our you know our beloved uh, team here dealing with uh, so many devastating uh, injuries. Um, uh, you know, in terms of sports, you know, a, a couple thoughts that we just had, uh, you know, in, in looking at the literature. I, th- I thought one article was uh, well done and, and interesting. Uh, this article was. Uh, from 2012 in the Journal of Applied Biomechanics. Uh, it was titled, The Effects of Postseason Break on knee, knee Biomechanics and Lower Extremity EMG and a Stop-Jump Task Implications for ACL Injury. And obviously, one, uh, one of the things that we've seen early on in this NFL season has been so many uh, ACL injuries. Um, but one of the takeaway points from this article was that even with a relatively short time away from that, uh, you know, uh, uh, really replication of the activities that they're doing for their specific sport, sport-specific activities, even with a short break, they saw significant changes in terms of the biomechanics, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the forces across the joint that they were measuring, uh, the, the changes in the EMG studies that they were doing, and, and then that putting the, uh, the individual at higher risk uh, uh, for ACL injury. I thought just some real quick s- statistics, which obviously seem kind of common sense, but um, uh, important to emphasize that a study in 2007 found that across 15 NCAA sports, um, there were significantly higher overall injury rates in the preseason compared to the regular season. Um, and that the overall injury rate during the preseason practice as well, not just games, but practice as well, was actually twice as high as during regular season practice. Um, and that was a different study also published in 2007. So just kind of emphasizing and driving home that key point that, um, and, and, and like, we, like we've discussed so far, I, and Dr. Hovez, uh, your thoughts as well on this, but I, I don't think that it's just a lack of uh, strength uh, or a significant decrease in the strength of that muscle. I think it goes back to the neuromuscular control and and the positioning of the joint and the stresses across the joint. Yeah, and I mean, and if you go back and look, and and I do want to give um, the NFL credit, they do a very good job of tracking injuries, of trying to monitor uh, ways to help players stay on the field, prevent uh, prevent injuries. Um, but you know, they if you look at the NFL data. It kind of coincides exactly with what with what you had just talked about. There are a significantly higher number of, especially uh, ACL tears, um, in the preseason as opposed to in the regular season, right? And so you know that's that coming back uh, from from the off season that's getting just back into very sport specific movement patterns, um, and you know, and I think overall the incidence of ACL tears has actually been slightly on the decline over the past decade. Um, but it's if you look at the actual uh, reports that the NFL has, every year it's about the same number of ACL injuries in the preseason as in the regular season, and obviously you know it's that, that the preseason is four weeks and the regular season is 17 weeks, right? And so to have the same exact number, that means that the obviously that the incidence is higher in preseason than it is uh, during the regular season, you know, by a factor of four, um, and so it, it kind of coincides exactly with what you were talking about. You know, and I think one of the arguments that that can be made about this year is that the va- you know there there were injuries in week one, but there was a lot more, especially bigger name injuries in week that happened in week two, um, and you know, and and whether or not you know, okay, would you have expected that more injuries would have happened in week one if if it was purely the lack of a preseason, the lack of uh, you know the a normal training camp, um, might be one of the questions that gets posed. Um, 
you know, but or could it have been that people were, you know, maybe a little bit more cautious in week one and people didn't play as many snaps or, you know, or whatever it may be, right? I mean, obviously, you know, the first few weeks of the season are going to be different this year than, than prior just because, you know, they haven't had as much live action. Um, and so ACLs obviously get uh, a large uh, amount of attention because it is a pretty devastating injury. We can take, you know, a year plus for patient, for players to come back if they return back to their uh, their normal uh, activity level. Um, and, and granted, in this day and age, ACLs are something that are very successful, surgically repaired, uh, and do a very good job. So a lot of these players hopefully will return back to the field. Um, you know, but you have you know some very significant players that have have suffered these these injuries, and I, I think you know there's going to be news stories about it. And you know, God forbid something else were to happen this weekend, there's going to be a lot of discussion about uh, the uh, this off season and and how these players are returning, um, which also you know might be something that we have to think about because currently NC2A is not in full swing, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously there's a very different set of expectations. Uh, or pressure placed on college players, right? And so this has to be part of the discussion um, that's going on. I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're going to stay away from the COVID conversation today uh, in terms of, uh, of that. But I mean, you know, we have college players that obviously are going to try, try their best to get on the field. They're, many of their goal is to get into the NFL. Um, and how much this, uh, you know, a shortened season, shortened training camps, et cetera, might put on those players, I think is also an interesting question. Yeah, no, it's, that's a that's a great point. And uh, before we wrap back around to uh, you know applying this to our, our our patients that we see on a day-to-day basis in clinic, I hate to bring up another incredibly painful memory for uh, Bay Area fans, but just as another example of this, and I think uh, we did talk about this at the time it occurred too. But you know, obviously, the other huge example of kind of going from uh, you know. Uh, relatively, um, I shouldn't say light activity. Again, these guys train so hard, but you know, not game speed, not not as sport uh, specific. Uh, you know, not being out there on the field, on the court, going from you know more of a, a simulated environment to then you know being out there with these other uh, ridiculously world class athletes uh, performing at the highest level. You know, the other the other painful example of that is Kevin Durant uh, uh, for the Warriors and. Um, he was looking so good just hitting threes and <laughs> like, like Dr. Hopez and I were talking about before this is uh, just reminiscing like man just keep shooting that's all you had to do was just keep knocking down shots but um, uh, obviously that was you know uh, hearts you know f- uh, hearts and prayers got to him for hopefully get, making a full recovery which hopefully is on the uh, near horizon here but um, yeah that you know that was another example and that just uh, just to kind of reiterate you know, for same thing for Achilles tendon rupture, looking at the literature, uh, we know that, you know, that most commonly occurs in adults from the third to the fifth decade of life. And obviously that fifth decade of life, you know, those aren't going to be elite athletes playing professional sports. Those are, you know, the quote unquote uh, weekend warriors who uh, uh, are relatively sedentary during the week um, uh, with their work, uh, potentially sitting at a desk and then they go out and try to run or play, you know, a, a sport at a high level because they used to, <laughs> which I'm very uh, familiar with. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, just another example of, you know, if you don't have that kind of optimal uh, gradation and, and work up to to uh, performing at that high level, it definitely puts you at risk of injury, at least based upon the literature we have available to this point in time. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, front of mind for us as uh, as sport fans, 
Um, and you know, as physicians that care for a lot of patients that have uh, that deal with similar things, you know, obviously the the NFL and the and this season is going to you know, we're going to learn a lot. I mean, obviously, we're, we're hopeful that more players don't have these devastating injuries, um, you know, but I think we are going to learn a lot about what's necessary to prepare for uh, for an NFL season or for, you know, a professional sports season. Um, but like Dr. Carvella said, I mean, we I think there is there's always something to learn in terms of being able to apply for our patients or for the for, you know, the normal public, the, you know, and, and I think Obviously, it's not going to be quite the same as saying, okay, well, a guy like Saquon Barkley, who's, you know, one of the most elite athletes in the entire world, um, you know, having to figure out how to go from being just a, you know, a a training specimen to, you know, performing on the field and having suffering an ACL injury. But, you know, for one of us, I mean, if we're going to go on out and play some sports on the weekend or do some activities with our kids or, or try to be physically active, how do we make sure you know that we're taking those right steps to be able to prevent some of these catastrophic injuries? Because you know, if you talk to most uh, sports medicine surgeons, the patients you know, pay, a lot of people get ACLs, and not all of them are professional athletes, right? And so, you know, trying to help to make sure that we're you know doing the things necessary in our gradation of activity to prevent injury as best as possible. Yeah, and I think I think a good key point, you know, when, when we are dealing with these patients, of course, you know, the patient population, Dr. Hova just alluded to, uh, you know, that being potentially younger or more active individual, uh, not only, uh, you know, treating their, um, uh, treating their painful conditions as they come in, but, you know, even, uh, you know, educating them early on, if they come in with a relatively mild, you know, a sprain or strain, I think that's a really good time to intervene and, and to make sure that they fully understand, you know, the literature out there and, and what we know about this whole process. That's a, a great time, you know, kind of preventative medicine. That's a good time to initiate that in that setting. Um, the other, you know, the other take-home points in, in patient populations to think about are chronic pain patients, you know, patients with uh, chronic pelvic pain, patients with fibromyalgia or, you know, chronic low back pain, all of these uh, patients. Um, I, I think it's important to, and we've talked about this before, you know, not making assumptions that they've had an adequate trial of physical therapy because in their head, you ask them, hey, have you had physical therapy? Yes, uh, didn't help. But then taking the next step and saying, okay, well, what did you actually do? Because a lot of times it's, well, I went for one session, I didn't like the therapist and it hurt afterwards, so I'm done. Well, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, the, that's why, you know, that's not an adequate trial of physical therapy and that still needs to be that physical therapy and, uh, and home exercise program still needs to be revisited and, and uh, um, optimized because all the medications, procedures, and interve- other interventions we do are not going to have the effect without without that. And you know, if you look at the different patient populations, you know, chronic pelvic pain obviously that's one of the most difficult uh, patient populations to treat. But that's a good example. You know, there is good uh, data out there, good studies out there showing showing that. Uh, uh, that uh, pelvic floor uh, physical therapy uh, is effective for it. Um, but what's also proven is if you just tell individuals like, hey, you know, do Kegel exercise or do these pelvic floor strengthening, that, then they don't do well. And so it's, it's really, you know, making sure they have the support, the education, and the guidance for these uh, chronic pain processes, not only, you know, 
to prevent injury like we've talked about with all these other situations but also to optimize their chance of success uh, moving forward yeah so take home point stick to the plan right i mean physical therapy whether you know you're uh, a weekend warrior or a patient living with chronic pain there is a process and a plan to that you know grading your movements and increasing them over time you know is a much similar is very similar to for that patient as preseason and contact drills are for the nfl player right this is the, the plan and the gradation of increasing slowly and, and, and making sure that workload is building over time is the same theory. Um, and so making, uh, you know, and, and so I know that, um, sorry, Nick Bosa, if you are offended that we uh, compare you to a patient living with chronic pain, uh, but it, it, is, it is the same theory that we're building on, right? We want to build that up, build up the tolerance, that activity tolerance, you know, and specific activity tolerance to decrease risk of re-injury, of injury, of taking steps backwards uh, in our overall plans to improve. Dr. K, anything else uh, as we kind of close out and uh, try not to piss off everybody in the NFL? <laughs> nope, that's, uh, uh, that's it. Thank you, guys. All right, stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.